Hello, everybody. Thanks for listening to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter, here with my friend, Dr. Susanna Greer. Hey, Susanna. Hey, Joe. How are you feeling? You good? I'm good. I'm good. Beautiful day today. Yeah, for sure. And beautiful conversation you had. I thought this was going to be really hard to understand. But you made it so easy, and Dr. Sabatini made it so easy. He's really good at talking about his work. And we're going to get into that in just a second. Uh, We're going to hear from Dr. David Sabatini. He's a member of the Whitehead Institute and professor of biology at MIT. So, Susanna, what are we going to hear about? Joe, we're going to really learn a very interesting story about a complex of proteins that is critically important for cell decision-making about growing, not growing, how are those decisions made, why and when. And David has been a thought leader in this field of biology for decades. But I think the thing that I really took away from this conversation was be adventurous, be an explorer, and just anticipate the unanticipated consequences, um, which have led him to some really fundamental areas of biology. Um, you're going to love this conversation. David is a great storyteller, and he's got some great stories to tell. So, anyway. Good afternoon, David. How are you? Good afternoon. Well, how are you? Well, I'm hanging in there. These are, I would say, interesting, challenging times, for yeah. sure. Um before we get started, I'd love Indeed. to know how how have you in, been impacted by the by the pandemic? Well, you know, I think like like most of the labs in the Boston area were were in essence shut down, um, and other than a couple of people being able to come in to keep essential you know, mouse work and uh, cell line uh, preservation, we really don't don't have much science going on. So we've had lab meetings, and soon there'll probably be data free lab meetings. Wow, well, a different space for for all of us. So we have a little time on the positive side to reflect on some of your really incredible contributions and maybe some of the things you're excited about and looking forward to doing when when things are a little more back to normal. So, but I think we need to level set a little bit for our audience um, on some of what you have done a tremendous amount of research on, which is on a group of proteins. You would probably call them a complex of proteins that are in cells. And the long name is Target of Rapamycin, and then the abbreviation is TOR, T-O-R. Maybe we could just back up, back way up um, a few decades ago, and just tell us about the discovery of TOR. It's a pretty cool history. Could you just tell us a little about it? Sure, sure. And, and just to clarify from the beginning, I'm, I mostly work on what's called mTOR, which uh, started as mammalian TOR, but then became renamed as mechanistic TOR. And, and this is largely the, the TOR that we find in animals versus TOR in yeast. Um, but the story actually starts many decades ago, uh, in fact, with a, with a trip to Easter Island, which is that island in the South Pacific that has those interesting statues, and there's a territory of, of Chile, and, and the, the collection of a soil sample actually there, which eventually led scientists to isolate from bacteria they got from the soil sample a drug, we now call it a drug, at the time it was just a small molecule, molecule called rapamycin, which is, incidentally was named rapamycin in deference to Rapa Nui, which was the indigenous name for Easter Island. And this molecule has had many interesting effects, most relevant here, anti-cancer effects, but also immunosuppressive effects, antifungal effects, 
And if you look in the literature, really many, many different kinds of effects. Rapamycin sometimes is seen as a bit of a wonder drug, for example, has anti-aging effects. And basically the, the question was, how does rapamycin work? And the answer is, is that it perturbs a protein that we call mTOR in animals or TOR in yeast. All right. So I really want to kind of break down mTOR and this, okay. the role that it plays in the mTOR complex. Um, and the best, when I was reading about your work, the best kind of thing that analogy I can think of, and you may have a better one, <laughs> but I, when I was thinking about ways that we could explain to our audience what we were thinking about in cells, I was thinking of like, um, my son's 13 now, but he used to really love Legos. And right, right when we used to play with Legos, you would take different pieces of Legos and you might make a critical part, like a, a, an axle or a bridge. And that critical part would go on to be a part of a bigger, really cool Lego. And so that's kind of when I was thinking about ways we could talk to our audience about a protein complex. That was one way I thought about it, that you've, right. you've studied lots right. of these proteins, right, as a part of this mTOR protein complex. Could you tell us maybe, and they're all important in different ways. So sure. using that analogy, could you tell us a little bit about those different parts of the mTOR family? Maybe what do they do? So I think your, your, your analogy is, is a good one. Um, the way um, I would phrase it is if you imagine a child playing with Lego pieces, and they're all sort of different kinds of pieces, right? Things that would make a wall of a building or axles for a car, you know, and they even have little piping. And right? they have all these cute little types of Lego pieces mTOR is kind of the child in that situation, it's, or, or if, you, if you thought about an adult sort of general contractor for a building. So the child is sort of deciding, I need a little bit of this, I need a little bit of this, and ultimately building something more complicated from these pieces. mTOR, in essence, is the general contractor for the cell. The cell wants to make more of itself, to grow and then divide. mTOR decides, well, we need more proteins, we need more lipids, we need more nucleic acids, we need more mitochondria, more lysosomes. It's the brain that decides the pieces that need to be made for a cell to grow and get bigger and eventually divide. So if you were to take that one step further, and you, you mentioned a lot of different potential roles, but so what's this general contractor up to? What's this child up to? Where, what are they building? Right. Right. So, um, so in that analogy, right, there's, there's two really sort of big picture questions you have to ask, right? What is the, the child or general contractor building? And the answer there is all the parts of the cell. So everything that makes up a cell. So that one is relatively easy. So everything that you can imagine a cell needs, a membrane, mitochondria, more DNA, more RNA, more proteins, it's building. But then really the, the almost more fascinating question, and, and I should say that that latter one, what we call that growth, we call it biomass accumulation, otherwise known as growth, basically making the stuff of cells. But then the question that we've been fixated on for the last few decades, or actually last decade, I should say, is really what are the signals that tell, again, in our analogy, the child to make things or the general contractor to make things? And the answer for mTOR is quite complicated. It's almost everything. It detects many, many aspects of the cell. But if you had to pick probably the number one it would be signals that reflect that the cell is in an environment that's adequate for growth. And by adequate for growth, I mean it has the nutrients and the energy sources to grow, right? So if you were making a house, you need, right, you, you need the components to make bricks, right? You need the electricity to drive the power tool. So, so mTOR can sense whether you've got the building blocks. 
to make cellular components and then turn on the building or not turn on the building itself. If that's true, then it seems like there could be an opportunity for this contractor, for MTOR, to make maybe not great decisions. So how then are bad decisions made that involve mTOR when we think about unregulated cell growth right. where you have you know, a right. change in production or maybe function? Tell us a little bit more about that. Right. So that, that's an interesting question. And so, you know, who, who do you blame in this, uh, in this problem? I'm not sure I necessarily blame mTOR um, in it. Um, mTOR itself is going to have masters above it. So all oncogenes might drive mTOR activity even when mTOR shouldn't be active, right? So mTOR might be detecting, oh, there's no nutrients here. I shouldn't be active. But then there's all these signals coming from above that are still driving its activation. And so I think the simple answer is that many of the tr classic pathways that we have identified through cancer genetics and other approaches that are behind cancer, right, the initiating events, are also turning on mTOR. And that makes sense. We, we estimate that 80% of cancers have to find a way to turn on mTOR because a cancer almost by definition is deregulated growth, the making of you know, more cells when you shouldn't be. And to make more cells, you need to make more of the biomass that's inside of cells. And then by, by definition, you have to turn on mTOR. So, so mTOR is then hostage to these deregulated pathways upstream. Probably the, the number one pathway that deregulates mTOR vis-a-vis -vis cancer is the PI3 kinase pathway. So mutations in PI3 kinase and AKT, the RAS pathway as well. Those all, through quite direct means, can turn on mTOR signaling. Maybe you could give us an example of that. I mean, first of all, that's, that's overwhelming. I mean, I've read that statistic before that 80% of cancers have to, or at, at some point during that oncogenic pathway, turn on mTOR um, because they need, they need more, they need more biomass. Um, so that, that, that statistic itself is startling. And then you kind of drove down into helping us understand which pathways, which cellular signaling might, might be behind that. And you mentioned the PI3 kinase pathway, which I think our listeners right. are not going to be familiar with that. So maybe you could sure. help us to understand, like, give us a specific example in one of these malfunctions that mTOR is playing right. some role in um, that leads to cancer. Okay. Sure. So, so, so the PI3 kinase pathway is one of the pathways that responds to what we would call growth factors. That is extracellular protein-based factors that signal between cells. And, and the best known example of that is insulin, right? Insulin is, is a factor that tells cells, take up glucose, because we have sufficient glucose in the body. And so, and PI3 kinase is one of the molecules that transmits that signal inside of the cell. And it, and it does that for many, many different types of growth factors beyond insulin. And so we now know that there are mutations in PI3 kinase itself that hyperactivate it, which basically make it somewhat ignore it will somewhat ignore the presence or absence of those growth factors it'll be on even if they're not there and through a series of steps involving proteins and phosphorylation steps this is where you transfer a phosphate from you know atp to a protein and regulate it through a series of these events we know how it can turn on mTOR directly um, some of this work came from brendan manning's lab when he was also with lewis cantley and so there's a quite direct series of events that we can connect from an oncogene in that case 
to turning on mTOR. And then from there you get what we would be more familiar with as kind of that unrestricted growth or a push towards growth. Exactly. So that cell now would start to generate biomass, particularly proteins. It would get larger and it would start making more and more material. And that would be connected in ways that we don't quite understand to the cell cycle. That is the cell division machinery to, of course, time the division. Um, but that cell, and it would be disconnected now. For example, if you removed, in, insulin normally turns on the mTOR pathway. But in a cell that had the kind of mutations we were talking about, insulin wouldn't matter. The cell would be, I don't care. There's no insulin. It doesn't matter. I'm still on because it has this mutation instead. And so that's how cancer ends up turning on the mTOR pathway is by, in essence, mutating the proteins that normally are involved in detecting the presence or absence of signals in the environment that are telling the cell to grow. And these are largely signals that reflect the presence of nutrients, either nutrients themselves or, in the example I gave you, a pathway that's detecting, in essence, glucose levels. All right. So in some ways, it's, it's pretty easy to understand um, the role, I think, of mTOR and other proteins like it that are responding to abundance or to scarcity. Right. So in times of when things are normal, when there is no cancer and there, there is abundance, mTOR can sense that and, and all these other proteins in this really complicated pathway and grow. And when there are times of scarcity, there is less growth. But in what you have shared with us is that one of the things that can happen in cancer is a loss of response to what we as humans can very basically understand is abundance is good and scarcity is bad. And when you have these mutations, all of those restrictions are off. So what you told us is that cells then in that kind of time of unrestriction do what we know happens in cancer, and that is that they they grow. And all the things that would normally keep cells from growing, like contact with each other and not invading other tissues, all those kind of all bets are off and, and cells can just really, really grow. So if that's the case, if everything that you said is true, then it seems like in this case, too much of mTOR may be a bad thing. Um, so yeah. it's the opposite true. Can we block mTOR as a way to treat cancer? So certainly what you said is true. So too much mTOR activity is, is not good, both in cancer and, in fact, also in metabolic diseases. So even hyper states of hypernutrition that deregulate mTOR and are hyperactivated, I shouldn't say deregulate, hyperactivated to high levels also are, are, are associated with bad outcomes. And so certainly people have had great hope to inhibit mTOR and have it to be quite a general anti-cancer uh, agent. Uh, and rapamycin, of course, as the first mTOR inhibitor and as the molecule that led to the discovery of mTOR was the first thing that's been tried. And indeed, there are anti-cancer effects. The problem is that mTOR is used in many, many processes in the cell. And in fact, if you think of sort of health of cells, it's a bit of a U-shaped curve. Too much mTOR is bad, but too little mTOR is bad too. So you need to be kind of in that sweet spot in the middle. And so while drugs like rapamycin will impact the growth of most tumors, they don't tend to be able to impact it enough to have you know, dramatic effects. There are, there are exceptions to this. Cancers that are driven by mutations in mTOR itself or direct negative regulators, there are more dramatic effects. The real problem is we can't, simply, we can't inhibit mTOR enough without having too many side effects, too many toxic effects. 
So we could certainly shut down a cancer cell with mTOR inhibitors, but you're also going to shut down most physiology. And so that balance, that therapeutic window, is quite hard to achieve. And so many of us are interested in finding alternative ways of perturbing this pathway than, than actually going after mTOR itself. mTOR in itself is almost too essential to go after. You can't inhibit it enough without having too many toxic effects. You know, it, it's really interesting. As you were describing that, I was thinking about, like, gas for a car, where right. you could think about a cancer cell being like a car that's speeding out of control. And so you're like, well, okay, well, to solve that, we'll just drain the gas out of the gas tank. But then right. the car can't move at all, which also isn't great exactly. for just moving around. So I, I really appreciate that example that no, you that's gave. A, that's a no, great way of thinking about it, right? That the car is non-functional, right? If you remove its fuel source, it's non-functional. So you, you stop the speeding. So you're, you're in less danger of crashing but you don't really have a functional car anymore. Yeah, and I think it's something we just don't think about that much when we get super excited um, as scientists and clinicians about what we would call potentially druggable targets. Um, it gets really complicated. You know, to, to me, the fundamental problem in biology and in developing new therapeutics is that biology is a tinkerer that reuses pieces. Right? So the mTOR pathway, you'd want to inhibit in this tissue or in this cancer cell, but in another tissue, you better not touch it. And that's a fundamental problem with, with small molecule drugs in particular that travel to most cells in the body. Right? And, and I think this is particularly acute in the mTOR field. I would love to have mTOR inhibitors. Let's leave aside cancer. But mm -hmm. I'd love to have mTOR inhibitors that acted in particular tissues and not others. Of course, I'd love to have mTOR inhibitors that acted only in cancer cells, but you know, that's almost impossible to think how long we'd do that. You're right. I mean, some of the the best things that happen because of our physiology are reusing those parts and pieces, um, but but in some ways very much leads to our detriment. So, yeah. so we continue. So one of the things I wanted to talk to you about before I let you go is that you, you really have, you and your team, and you've already mentioned several collaborators, and we all know science doesn't happen in a vacuum, but you have you have really made some incredibly, for lack of a better word, cool research tools. And you're really known for sharing these um, in the scientific community. So I thought it would be really nice to hear from you about, you know, do you, is there a favorite? Is there, is there a tool that you could tell us about in a way that we could understand kind of its reach and impact? Um, maybe that you could just spend a little time sharing with us. Sure. No. So I've um, I've always been interested in developing tools, and it was very kind of you to to bring up um, that we've done a little bit of work in this space. And, and and a lot of it has been driven by frustrations with working in the mTOR pathway, where I wished we could do certain things and we couldn't. And so we've tried to work on, for example, genetic-like tools. And so a student in my lab, Tim Wang, who was was a joint student with Eric Lander, who was the director of the Broad. He developed the first CRISPR screens, right? So he made the first CRISPR libraries and, and developed a lot of the original CRISPR screening technology, which, as you know, is quite an effective way for doing genetics in mammalian cells. That is systematically perturbing the functions of every single gene and asking, does it work in my system or not? In our case, does it work as part of the mTOR pathway? So I'm proud of the work that we did early on in doing that. And CRISPR screening now is an incredibly widespread, widespread used tool. So David, was, could, you know, before, number... you, 
I'm sorry, before you go on, I just, I want to help our audience understand. Well, now CRISPR is something we all read about in Newsweek and Time Magazine, but it, that was not the case. What, what does it feel like or what? Um, yeah, no, so, 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 yeah, I don't want to, I want to make sure that, that I'm clear with what, what I'm saying. So, you know, the idea that one could use, you know, nucleases such as Cas9 to cut in specific places in the genome, you know, clearly that work was developed by others. And because we always wanted to do genetics at large scale, and we had done, for example, some of the earliest RNAi uh, types of screens as well, that's a different way of doing a genetic-like system. As soon as we saw those tools start to be developed, we, we took it to the next level and basically made genome-wide libraries where we could target every human gene or every mouse gene and study them um, en masse. And so that was very satisfying at the time because mm -hmm. I remember we, we weren't even sure that some of these things would work in, in human cells. We weren't sure that we could actually get sort of the deep sequencing approaches that one needs to be able to, to you're, you're handling in this case sort of hundreds of millions of sort of individual cells that you need to monitor and, and ask what's happening to them. So we weren't sure they were able to do that. Uh, and a lot of the credit really goes to Tim Wang when he was in the lab. He was really quite a, quite a genius in not only the experimental part, the web biology part, but also the computational part of, of doing this. And really since then, many labs have, have done these things and, and have even made better libraries than, than we originally made. Uh, but but the, the original work that he did and some of the screens we did to discover biological, you know, new biological insights, I think really did help drive the field and saying, hey, this is a useful thing to do. Um, more recently, we've been working actually with methods to isolate subcellular compartments very quickly, particularly organelles. These are membrane-bound compartments, and to look what's inside them. It's sort of the idea is that, that if you can isolate something very quickly, you can look at the small molecules in them before they leak out. So I'm also quite proud of these these methods that we've been developing over the last few years because they've also had impacts in, in example, mitochondrial biology or lysosome biology. These are two types of organelles in, in human cells. Well, and maybe help us understand why should we care about that? Who who cares about what's in isolated in a specific kind of part of the cell and where it is and what's happening? Why why were you so curious about that? Why did you need to know that information? Yeah, well, if you know, if you think about one of the major differences between a prokaryotic cell and bacteria versus a eukaryotic cell, such as us or as yeast is that we have this whole internal membrane system in our cells, right? Both bacteria and us have a plasma membrane, but we have mitochondria inside, lysosomes, the endoplasmic reticulum. These are all membrane-bounded organelles. And so you could say, well, well, why do we have this, right? Well, why do we even need this? Well, it allows you to do reactions in a compartment that then are protected from other, other things that are going on in the cell. So, for example, the lysosome, is well known for destroying proteins and lipids and nucleic acids. Well, how do you do that and not damage the, the rest of the cell? Well, the way you do it is you put a membrane around it and you have those reactions just happen there. And so that then leads to the question is, well, what really are the exact components inside of those compartments? And it turns out that those underlie fundamental biology, right? The mitochondria is our main way of making ATP. So it'd be nice to know what's inside a mitochondria, but it's only about 10% of the volume of a cell. And so the small molecules, the metabolites, of which, right, there's hundreds to thousands of different kinds of metabolites in human cells, to know what they are in the mitochondria in the context of the rest of the cell, well, the rest of the cell swamps out that signal because it's so much bigger than the mitochondria. 
This is even more true in the lysosome, which is about 2% of the cell volume. And so to be able to look at what's in them, you really need to isolate them very quickly within minutes so that things don't leak out and then profile them, usually by using a mass spectrometer. And so using this approach, we've discovered the functions, for example, of a couple of disease-related genes that act in those compartments, but we didn't know what they did because the signal was swamped out by the rest of what's happening in the cell. I, I think you could take that back to our analogy that we used at the very beginning, which is that if you're a child and you're sitting there and you're surrounded by thousands and thousands of Legos, some really important ones can get lost in that. Um, so I oh, love that, yeah, you've generated these really wonderful tools to pull out yeah, that. Be, being small does not mean you're not important, right? <laughs> Absolutely not. So, yeah, I mean, the, the, these tools that you've generated have allowed us to understand what are the essential roles that you, even that, that tiniest little Lego plays. And then if, if it's missing, um, what will happen? What will be the impact of, of not having it or having too much of it or et cetera? So I, mm-hmm. I really want to ask you just a couple more questions. And one is that I, one part of your story that I love is that the, the span of your career has been so interesting and spans so many areas. And we really only talked about one today. We really only talked about the mTOR pathway because of its relationship to cancer. Um, but you also have done a lot of work um, around the impact of diet on physiology. I, right. I don't know if that's what you're most excited about right now, but I would love just uh, before I let you go, would you share with us what are you what are you looking sure. forward to once things are, once you're able to be back in the lab? What are you reading about and thinking about and what are you excited about right now? <laughs> That's a good question. What am I reading about? The, the, truth, the true answer to that is not much. I, I have not found this to be a very productive period. And so uh, there's too, too, much, too much stress uh, going on and too many people to, to worry about. But what am I interested in, hopefully, when, when we go back to normal? I think... As you said, diet is a, is a very interesting modulator of almost all physiology and disease. But of course, diet is such a complicated thing, right? Like when food stuff has so many different molecules in it, they can all have so many different impacts on different tissues in our body. So I think we're going to enter a new era of what I would sort of call almost molecular nutrition, where we can really un- try to understand all those little parts of our diet, how they impact our physiology and how they then how their, their effects at the molecular level. That's an enormous problem. I've often thought, hey, but once you start making an institute, it's just around that. It's, it's such a huge, huge problem. But what we have focused on is how we sense certain kinds of nutrients. And in particular, we, we've been interested in how we sense amino acids, right? So amino acids are the building blocks of proteins. Proteins do almost all the work inside the cell. The cell needs to know it has amino acids so it can make protein. And the mTOR pathway, based on what I told you before, clearly would want to know whether we have amino acids. And so we have spent about 10 years looking for the sensors. These are the proteins that actually detect the amino acids. And I really like this kind of protein because this is, if you think about it, the kind of protein that touches the environment, right? That's the interface between us and the outside world. Because this is a protein that binds an amino acid that you ate, right? So that's that connection. And we've found some of these sensors now. And so what we need to do now that we've studied them biochemically and even structurally is understand how they work inside the body, right? They act in different cells in different ways. Some of them matter more in a brain cell, some matter more in a cancer cell, some in a liver cell. We need to understand that and start to put together a big picture of how physiology is controlled. 
And that would just be a tiny, tiny part of understanding how nutrients regulate physiology. But I think at the beginning, and of course, there's, there's been work by many people in different kinds of nutrients. For example, lipid signaling has been studied for some time. But, but I think eventually we'll have a much bigger picture of understanding how our diet impacts physiology and disease. I, I really do love that you attack these big problems. And I'll just close out with two, two final questions. One is that the ACS has been a big fan of yours for a long time and I'm thrilled that you are a part of what we do. Is there a way that ACS funding has impacted your research? Oh, yeah, tremendously. So I'll tell you two ways. So one is that having funding from the ACS that has less of a very sort of strict metrics on it, right? It's sort of less, you're going to do exactly this and gives us a little bit of flexibility, has let us be adventurous in our work. And so, for example, the ACS funding has allowed us to directly get into an aspect of biology that we didn't talk too much about it, but is, is quite connected to everything we talked about. And this is the proteins that we could call transporters that allow a nutrient to go from one place to another. For example, from the outside world to the inside of the cell, or from the cytosol of the cell, that is the non-membranous part of the cell, inside of a lysosome or inside of a mitochondria. So we've, we have a big research effort on those transporters, and that is largely funded by ACS funds. The other aspect is a, is a little bit of a different one, is that it's allowed us actually to have our lab retreats where we invite alumni and current lab members, and we usually go to one location and have, last time we had 38 talks of, uh, of science talks. And those have been tremendously helpful for allowing different generations of the lab to connect so that when people that are currently in the lab are looking for positions or need advice, they know, you know, more senior people at other institutions. Probably the, the best thing I've done from a social community building uh, aspect of the lab. So ACS funding has been absolutely critical in them, both of these quite diverse fronts. All right, David, one last question. And this one is... Um... For our listeners, so many of our listeners are cancer patients or folks who love them and take care of them. Um, you've been impactful in this space for a long time. Is there a particular message you'd like to share with these members of our audience? Yes, that, that those of us who are much more basic scientists, such as, 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 as I am, are, are really driven by understanding that there are people that are really suffering these terrible diseases and their families are being impacted. By the people like me that did an MD-PhD, did a little bit of clinical training in medical school, are aware of that, and it's something that we think about. It's not abstract. It's not that the work we do, we only do it. Of course, there's the love of discovery, but there's also the understanding that we hope that at some point this will have some impact. And, you know, in many cases, it's many years away, but it's not something that we don't think about. And so we do think about that. You know, David, I think one of the things I'll take away from our conversation is that you seem in many ways to me like a great tinkerer, right? You're in so many different areas and you've made so many contributions that in a way you're very similar to cells themselves, which are reusing different parts and pieces and, and making much bigger and better things from them. So thank you for all you do. We're, we're really grateful and wish you the best. We know these are challenging times. Well, thank you. No, I, 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 one of my big mottos is that we should try things. And, uh, and ACS funding and funding like it is, is really enables that. You know, we, don't, we know so little about biology and science in general. That sometimes you just have to try something. And most of the times you're wrong, but sometimes you're not. 
So thank you. It's uh, definitely been a challenging time for those of us uh, who run labs. It's been nice to see how many of our colleagues have risen to the challenge to try to help uh, in any way they can with this pandemic. Um, but, but you know, we look forward to being able to do science again and hopefully all come out of this stronger and better and, and, you know, more of a community also. I hope so. All right. Take care, David. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Have a good day.